everyone. I'm Laura Grundler. And I'm Matt Grundler. And today on K-12 Art Chat, the podcast, we are going to be talking with a giant, amazing crew of Wanda Knight, James H. Rowling, Mario Rosero, and Ray Yang from our NAEA EDNI panel. We have we a have, we actually have a full house tonight. It is a full house <laughs> and it is it is a group of fantastic leaders from all over the country right now, actually. Yeah. And um, I'm feeling a little nervous and very honored <laughs> to have such an illustrious group of uh, art leaders in our web. I was going to say web, webinar, webinar, but it's no, not, it's a, not webinar, a webinar, a podcast <laughs> tonight. A podcast. So um, we have James H. Rowling Jr., who is our current president of NAEA, and Wanda Knight, who is our upcoming president of NAEA. And we have Mario Rosario. Did I say that right, Mario? I didn't oh. think I did. <laughs> you sound like my old principal who'd say Mario Rosario. Rosario. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no. No, there's no I in the last name. It's just Rosario. So anyone that listens to the podcast <laughs> knows this is my, and then, so I always then ask because I think I, I definitely want to honor the correct pronunciation. So thank you for getting it right for me. <laughs> of course. <laughs> And you are the executive director of NAEA, correct? All right, I got that right. And then Ray Yang, and they are the EDNI director. Ray, it's it's a long title. Okay. Especially when I have to write it and type it, it's the director of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and special initiatives for NAEA. Fantastic. So that includes the EDNI stuff and also a lot of advocacy and policy work. That's awesome. That's and then whatever else Mario tells me to do. <laughs> <laughs> so if we could just begin by asking each of you to just kind of, and we'll go in that same order, James, Wanda, Mario, and Ray, if each of you could just give us a little bit, maybe not your whole journey, but a little bit of your educational, especially art education journey, um, and what's brought you to this leadership position that you're in today. Okay, so uh, I guess I'll start just to, to uh, make sure there's no gap in the conversation. Um, uh, I'm James Rowling. I am a former elementary school art teacher from New York City. You might detect the Brooklyn accent. Uh, uh, and I am currently chair of arts education at Syracuse University and uh, the president of the National Art Education Association. And uh, I suppose if I'm answering the question correctly, um, my journey with regard to equity, diversity, and inclusion, I would I would I would categorize it as as lifelong. Uh, as as someone who has um, was was bused to uh, from uh, a, a predominantly um, African American. Uh, uh, community, West Indian community to uh, an all white community, essentially, um, uh, from one side of Brooklyn to the other, um, I learned very early on how to, um, how, how necessary it was to navigate uh, these, um, this, this discord, uh, uh, oftentimes in terms of how, um, how we, how we live and interact with one another and, and, and oftentimes segregate from one another. Um, and how to 
so for me, this uh, this has been a journey where I've always prized and recognized the need for uh, not only access, but also, um, I'm going to say, uh, equity in the sense uh, that I'll talk about it probably a little bit later on in terms of a sense of welcoming folks to the table, also giving folks what they need once they get there, um, which is not the same thing. Uh, you know, access is one thing, but um, making sure that everyone has what they what they need and what they um, uh, in order to survive and to thrive, uh, that's a that's a different story, and that takes everybody looking out for one another. Uh, so I'll stop there just for the sake of time. Thank you, James. Wanda? Sure. Um, um, as mentioned, my name is Wanda Knight, and I'm currently serving in the role of um, Assistant um, Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in several other categories. And if you look at all the long titles uh, associated with my name, they are related to issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think I've always... Um, I had an equity eye, if you will, or lens. Um, I grew up in the rural, um, segregated South. Um, and I saw things that were, as a kid, it made no sense to me. And I was like, why, why can't people get along? Um, I just remember seeing a lot of racial strife. Um, and when, when our schools integrated, I remember how teachers um, treated I'm going to use the word us black kids. Um, they, they hit, they didn't want to teach us. Um, I had people cry uh, because they were forced to come, some of the teachers. And, um, and then I just kept thinking that's not the way it should be. So I decided I wanted to be a teacher and I wanted to, to make change of some sort. And my middle name is Bridges or my um, maiden name, and I wanted to bridge these divides. So it's kind of funny that I ended up with a name that um, given kind of my mission or a vision of bringing people together. Um, so in doing that, I have served all over the world, literally um, having um, um, a spouse that was 22 years in the military. So I saw all these places all over the world and I saw similar kinds of issues of inequity, social injustice, and I'm like, this is everywhere. So I became a K through 12 teacher. What can I do to change as I moved around in these different locales throughout the world? And then um, I, I served as a museum educator. I try to affect change in those ways because I was the different one in most of those communities. And, and I wanted to know what could I do um, for people to see me as a human being and other people so they would have opportunities to thrive and not have these impediments. And then later on, my journey as a principal, same kind of thing. Um, I wanted to become a principal because I felt like I'd have greater influence to, to, um, to um, be a change maker as well and then a professor uh, ultimately at Penn State University where um, I'm teaching a lot of diversity classes and uh, working with some of the smartest and brightest students all over the world, knowing that they will also be change makers given some of the experiences that they have that I intentionally um, dealt with to ensure that they would have what they need to in their tool bags or the kinds of things they would need to equip them. So my journey has been long and it's been broad. Um, and I have um, taken on these kinds of issues because I know that um, we can make a difference, um, but we need enough committed people strategically doing the work. And that's where we'll see the greatest change from being change takers to change makers. Awesome, fantastic. Thank you. Mario? 
Hey everyone, Mario Rosero, Executive Director of NAEA, and gonna, I'm going to do this a little differently. Just, I'm thinking about different roles and titles, right, that'll make it a little bit briefer, but it's interesting to think that way. So I'm, when I graduated from college, I worked at Happy Face Daycare, which is important because I also did that job with the little ones the same time that I was teaching at the Andy Warhol Museum as an artist educator. And not many people in the NAEA audience know this, but my middle name is Ricardo. So at the time I was going by Rick or Ricky, but I, when I got that job at Happy Face Daycare, my resume said Mario. And so when I was introduced to the three-year-old class, they said, kids, this is Mr. Mario. So then I was Mr. Mario from then on. So just sharing that little, that little tidbit. Anyways, um, then I was a, a middle school art teacher at Peters Township in Western Pennsylvania, where I'm from outside of Pittsburgh. And then I taught uh, uh, elementary in one building, in middle school in another, and actually a third elementary, a third building in elementary school in Shaler uh, outside of Pittsburgh. And I was there for about eight years, had a great experience. Uh, I really wanted to find a leadership path because as many of my colleagues in the classroom know, if you're an art teacher with leadership skills, you hit your head off the ceiling right away because those paths aren't always obvious. And it, I, I swear this is true. I went to my first uh, New York NAEA convention, my first convention for NAEA in New York, presented a project I was working on, and I met uh, by happenstance, my grad school. So Bank Street School of Education had a partnership with Parsons School of Design that built leaders from the classroom into principal roles and administrative roles. Wow. And so I was really fortunate to find that program. And when I finished, instead of going back to Pittsburgh, I moved to Chicago. And my goal was to become the, the head of the arts for the city, but I had a little ways to go. So I was an art teacher for pre-K to eighth grade at Harold Washington Elementary in the south side of Chicago, probably my favorite teaching job ever. 800 kids, 10 grade levels, seven classes a day, 43 seventh graders, 35 chairs. It was amazing. I loved every second of it. I was the only person in the building that knew every kid's name. Mm -hmm. uh, so I ran all the assemblies. Um, <laughs> and then I joined central office in Chicago Public Schools and I was there for the next uh, 10 or 11 years. And I, uh, oversaw a program that built up the, the leadership skills of art teachers. And then I got to go across multiple content areas. I, I ran the magnet programs that went into world language and math and science. So I'm like the arts guy that likes to go to other subjects and do other things. And then I went deep again in the arts and I did that uh, as a supervisor in uh, Pittsburgh public schools for a year. And then probably my favorite district job was being the director of arts for Chicago public schools and changing the game by bringing real strategy and saying band-aids are not sufficient for these problems. Let's come up with actual solutions, which really came down to uh, accountability and honest expectations that were communicated clearly to everybody. Uh, and then I wanted a national challenge from a local challenge of Chicago and was lucky enough to move to DC and work for the Kennedy Center and manage their education portfolio. Um, and then I was, I was ready for the next, uh, the next challenge and NAEA feels like such a home base for me. So when this opportunity opened up, I, we just, I think we all thought it was a really great connection and, and uh, uh, the organization was in such good shape that it was an opportunity to really run with something that could go even further. And I have to say that um, 
part of what drives me because I'm from Pittsburgh, Mr. Rogers is a big hero and icon for me. And when he passed, I remember I was listening to the radio and there was a segment and he said, you know, hearing his voice say the worst feeling in the world is to feel excluded. And boy, when I tell you that resonated with me and it just, it just like went through every layer of my work. And I was like, I, I couldn't have said it so succinctly. That's really what drives my work is to make sure that, you know, whoever my audience is of students or teachers or learners or whatever the community is, I want to make sure everyone feels included. And so that's, that's what we're doing right now is making sure that we're reaching out to the far corners of our education and making sure that folks feel like they're part of the family. So I'll stop with that. Thanks. Mario, I have to, uh, I have to say that when you started talking about Shaler and Pittsburgh, I have a really strong family that is from that area. So I, I knew exactly where you were. So we'll have to talk about that later sometime. Got it. Ray. Well, I got to follow all those acts. Um, uh, yeah, my um, art education journey has been kind of um, a little bit of everything. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why I, I am so excited to be with NAEA now. So um, I've, I've worked um, within community art centers, museums. Um, I was in Chicago for about 15 years there and uh, worked on the South Side on, at the Hyde Park Art Center doing teacher professional development, artist programs. I built a couple different teen programs there. So, you know, I've been in museums, I've worked as a teaching artist. Um, I've worked as an administrator. So I was in Chicago Public Schools as well uh, in the Department of Arts Education. Um, and so kind of touched on all different things. Um, Chicago is also where I went to grad school at the School of the Art Institute. Um, and I taught grad school classes there for several years um, before making the move to Seattle. Uh, I've been in Seattle for about six years. And uh, in Seattle, I came and I was doing curriculum writing and assessment for Seattle Public Schools, again, working as a teaching artist uh, with the Seattle Art Museum. And then um, Previous to this position for the last five years, I was in the classroom. I was teaching um, at an independent school here in Seattle and I was teaching middle and high school students. And so Matt, I know what you mentioned being a middle school teacher, right? Middle school teachers, I think are a unique breed, Yes, all of us. <laughs> and so, um, um, and I loved it. I loved working with middle school students um, and, and, and the high school students too. And so, um, you know, and, and spent uh, time doing that. But you know, where the equity, diversity and inclusion element comes in, that's, you know, something that's always been part of my teaching and my thinking, um, you know, from growing up to, you know, when I was, I remember actually being in grad school is when it really started to come into focus for me and started to really start to understand, um, you know, a, a, just to have a different lens on inequities and imbalances and being in Chicago, which is, you know, such a segregated city and understanding, especially when I went to work for, um, the Hyde Park Art Center on the South Side and, and um, seeing just the imbalance that, of, of what, what it looked like in schools where, you know, when you went to the North Side versus the South Side. Um, and so it's, it's been a part of my work. And then um, as a classroom teacher, I actually, uh, you know, Mario mentioned leadership roles. I was kind of always taking on different pieces. I was also a grade level dean. I did just like, you know, various different things. And um, but equity university were always part of my work and from like the curricular elements I was doing to um, I was running and leading um, affinity groups for uh, the staff and faculty of color at my school. Um, 
I participated in the uh, National Seed Project. So I was seed trained at uh, Seeking Educational Equity University. And so you run seminars that examine and really pull apart um, systems of oppression and really talking about creating dialogues around that. So I ran and facilitated, co-facilitated that at my school. Um, I was a part of the task force for equity, diversity, and inclusion um, at NAEA that, you know, that Wanda, you know, uh, spearheaded that James was a part of. And, and so it's always been a part of my work. Um, but, you know, if I, I, if I also look back, I realized like, you know, I, I remember going to my first NAEA conference when I was still in grad school, you know, which is a while ago now. <laughs> and, um, and NAEA is a very different organization, I think now versus what it was back then. And I remember feeling, you know, really isolated, not seeing a lot of people of color and not seeing a lot of folks and, and just being really frustrated by a lot of things. And um, I think the work from when the task force started, and, and then obviously before that, you know, people have been working on this since then, but, you know, in the last several years, I think I've seen a real shift. And so uh, when the uh, position Open, which was part of one of one of the recommendations of the EDNI task force, was to create a staff person who's doing equity, diversity, and inclusion work at NAEA. Um, and that opportunity emerged. I I was, I mean, I was floored that it was happening. But I've known Mario for a while. I was like, if someone was going to do that, Mario was going to be the person who was going to be able to push that work. And um, and I was excited to you know um, you know to put my name in and and you know and. And it's been an honor to kind of serve with the commissioners who are part of the EDNI commission to work with the staff. Um, it's been absolutely amazing. And I'm excited for the potential of what NAEA can do now as a leader nationally in arts education. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, well, just hearing all of you is just phenomenal. I was just also curious, did Ray and Mario cross paths at all in Chicago public schools? Yes, we did. We, you know, I think we uh, intentionally downplay a little bit, but uh, Ray was a really critical part of my arts education team in the Department of Arts Education. So we had this unique moment where the city was doing a cultural plan and what we heard from uh, citizens all over and parents and grandparents and kids was that they, they cared about the arts in the public schools for the city. I mean, this was like outside of the district. So suddenly the district become front, became front and center for uh, arts education. And so Ray was part of the team that helped to make that change happen. That's, That's awesome. amazing. Yeah. Well, a better word. Yeah. And just, you know, thinking about the commission and thinking about the four of you, the collaborators that you've put into the process of ED&I for, you know, the community that that's really where the power is right like just getting the right people in the right places so thank you for all your work to get us to where we are but also moving us forward from here so we had a twitter chat and we sent out prompts to ask people questions what questions they had about equity diversity and inclusion so that's where these questions are coming from they're coming from community members that are art educators from everywhere so, so i'm going to let matt take this first one so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of start by directing the question at one person and let them answer and then kind of trickle around to see uh, other people's answers as well um so wanda the first question actually kind of starts with you um our question comes from shannon fish and she asks, um, she'd like to hear your perspective on relationships between the concepts of equity and equality as they relate to an art classroom, because that 
you know, sometimes changes from just being a general classroom to an art classroom. Okay, thank you for that um, question. I think um, it's, it's an important question, particularly when um, part of our work says equity, diversity, and inclusion. And I really think it's important that um, it has been my experience that many people confuse the two terms or they use them as synonymous when they actually are quite different. Um, what I'd like to say in this most simplistic way is that um, equality is sameness. If this one is the same as this one. And when you think about equity, in its most simplistic terms. And we have terms, obviously, um, and how we have defined them, working definitions and um, within NAEA, but these are my simplistic definitions. Equity is fairness and justness. And I think to differentiate the two in classrooms, I've heard teachers say, or perhaps you, some of you have said something very similar. If there's a special request, then a teacher or someone might say, well, I can't do that because if I do it, everybody will want that done for them. Well, well, I balk at that kind of notion because everybody doesn't have the same needs, the same desires or the same wants. And I think that's really critical. Um, but when I think when it comes to an art education classroom, this is where we can be so flexible in how we um, you know, uh, work with people and understand the needs, um, unique needs of individuals. There are times that something needs to be equal, but then many times um, the notion of, of equality is not necessarily fair or just. Um, and I, I'd like to say that um, also, um, and many of you, if you've seen me, I've done um, use this particular cartoon um, and it's pretty widely known that if equality is if somebody's looking over a fence and it's a barrier, and then you have one box for the tall guy and one box for the very um, vertically challenged person and then a, a small box for the person in a wheelchair. Well, obviously that's not fair, that's equal. Everybody got the same thing, but equity would be what is needed. Well, the tall person may not even need a box. The vertically challenged one may need two. And then the person that is in a wheelchair may need a whole ramp. But ideally we would remove the barrier, then everybody would have access. But I guess what I've done in terms of a classroom, for example, um, when we have everything being the same, um, I used to have students always have their own portfolio at the elementary level. And I had about seven to 800 students. And I've taught so many elementary grade levels and K through 12 examples as well, because I've taught all those grade levels in my travels um, as well. But everybody had their own portfolio and all the students were working on things at different times. And I knew that there, everybody didn't learn in the same way on the same day. And that's when I've seen teachers get Students get frustrated because they have started work and you only have 40 minutes worth of time to work because some of that was explanation cleanup and all of that, and they don't get to finish. And then the next time there's another assignment. But in my situation, they didn't have to do the assignment at, on that day because they could pull their portfolio and work on something a longer period of time. And I rarely ever had discipline problems. The students were very much into their work. So that's an example of how I try to look at what was fair, what was equitable, rather than everybody has to do it this way. 
And I think when we do that, we create impediments for, for youth and learners um, to, to thrive. And I think there's a space where they can thrive in our classrooms if we consider more equitable practices rather than focus on equality and what we want as teachers versus listening to students who tell us what their needs are. So thank you for that question. That's a terrific answer. <laughs> thank you. I, I was wondering as you were speaking though, is there any, what would be a, an example of a time that you would want to fight for equity? Um, I always fight. And, and you know, a lot of times I, I, I'm a person that uses language very intentionally. Mm -hmm. So I, I try to avoid fighting. I try to advocate. Mm -hmm. So at fighting begets winners and losers. Mm -hmm. So I like to think advocate for equity um, and I'm always advocating for equity um, in every situation in which I operate. Um, so sometimes when I look at um, a, a grading or assessing, that's an opportunity to look at what's fair given the situation and the circumstances. Sometimes people give students all the same work. And I might say, well, hey, why don't we look at um, a, a more equitable proportion given the students' needs? Because do they really need to do all of that? Or are you, what are you after? What's the outcome? And if the outcome is, can they do, do they have to do 10 of those things to, to prove that they can just do one or whatever, given that student might work a little slower than the other? But then if you disp uh, are disproportionate or proportionally um, giving them that particular work and you can assess the kinds of outcomes, I think that is when we need to advocate for a different way to assess um, you know, our youth and learners because that's a, a place where we have some sense of agency and we can um, control those situations in our classrooms. And I think we then we'll have more students who will achieve success versus this rigid standardized way of doing things. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, it's just, it's a really tangible example of, yeah. of advocacy, like why we, we want to fight for those, the equity for students. Thank Absolutely. you. Thank you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was going to have question. you. You go. I guess I'll I'll, I'll do the next one. Um, James, this this next question is actually more directed towards you, um, mm -hmm. and it comes from uh, Ruth Ryan. 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 Okay. Um, and she asks, "How can we make sure diversity in arts education isn't a one-year buzzword, mm -hmm. but a lifelong process?" That's well. That's a that's a great question. Um, in the sense that of, I think uh, I, I'll approach that by, by thinking about why sometimes it does become a buzzword or a checklist. And that's oftentimes because people are, um, certain persons were put in the position of advocating for diversity or not really advocating for diversity, but are advocating or positioning uh, themselves to sort of say that we checked off the box and we are we are um, uh, doing these initiatives as assigned or as expected. Um, but I have often pointed out that in order to do real EDI or equity, diversity, inclusion work, everything that we need to know about it, we actually all learned on the kindergarten playground. Um, it's about really looking out for one another, looking out for the people over your shoulder, looking out to make sure nobody's left out. Uh, making sure that uh, to make sure uh, making sure that everybody's included, and I 
I do have a, a couple of different ways I can answer this question, but I do want to pick up on something that uh, Wanda was just speaking about in terms of the difference between equality and um, and equity, um, where and, and, and to my mind, um, equity, uh, sorry, equality is about giving everyone equal access at the at the art room table, but equity is about making sure that everyone gets what they need to feel fulfilled and get the most out of that planned creative activity. So for example, I, I once had a, I, I'd never, I, di I didn't mention in my, in my introdu introduction that I, I've worked as the director of um, diversity initiatives for the College of Visual and Performing Arts at Syracuse University. And I was also uh, honored to be the inaugural uh, chair of the uh, EDI commission at NEEA and, and helped to assemble this, uh, this wonderful uh, group of um, advocates. Um, but where I really learned the, the effect of, of thinking about equity was in the elementary school classroom. So uh, the story I'll tell is, is um, of a child who was once transferred into my fourth grade, one of my fourth grade classrooms, um, who clearly um, was, uh, I don't know what, that couldn't, didn't know exactly everything that, he, in, in terms of the situation that he came from, but he was clearly very hesitant, skittish, deeply disengaged in the art uh, room for for a good month and a half up until one day I assigned a ceramics project uh, where every child was simply tasked to create a pinch pot um, and so somewhere in the middle of the activity this young man um, came up to be very very hesitantly almost like he was afraid he was going to get his his uh, you know wrist slap, um, which once again made me wonder what he went through in the previous school that he was in with the previous art room. Um, and he asked me, can, can, I, can I make another one? Uh, as if that was like a breaking a rule. And I said, sure, you can make another one. And as his, he lit up and he, he made another one. And then he came back to me again and said, Look, can, can I make another one? And, 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 and over the period, he made four pinch pots to, to everybody else's one. And from that point on, because, you know, because what he needed really was, an, was uh, uh, for some reason, pottery was the, the thing that was a catalyst for him, uh, working with clay, getting his fingers in clay. And then also the, the, the amendment of the instructions, that it wasn't just about do, the, do as I say, this goes here, this is what we're going to do next. But, um, but everything changed for that student from that point on. Um, and that was like a moment, like a story that I like to, I like to do, I do like to tell stories. Um, and that was a moment where everything changed for that student from that point on, where I recognized that what he needed was different from everybody else in the classroom. And that turned everything for him. So the last thing I'll say about the, in order to answer Ruth's question, is that I, I think about diversity in a particular way that I, that, I, that I think helps translate it in terms of its importance so that it's not just a one year buzzword. Um, uh, so the, what I would, the way I would frame it is that just as biodiversity uh, makes the local en environment healthy and a diversified portfolio offers, um, you know, that long range health for your finances. I, I, I personally view diversity as a growth strategy, both in the arts and in education, where we're strengthening the gene pool of ideas and relationships and collaboration for the long haul, right? So, so in the sense that bigotry and segregation and homogeneity, that's the anomaly. 
diversity is actually life. Uh, and and if, once you have that framework, it helps you to um, to recognize that it is it it is something that if we are to thrive as a as as cultures and as a society and as civilizations, uh, uh, the more diversity, the better. Um, and that's a that's a lifelong recognition commitment. Um, uh, because we have to keep on interacting with with those who bring different things to the table, right? So that's why I'll say, I'll say that in the response. <laughs> you guys are leaving me speechless. Uh, <laughs> thank you, James. Um, I'm going to ask the next question because because <laughs> it would sound weird. If... Well, it would sound weird if you ask it because you wrote it. But <clears throat> during the Twitter chat, Matt Grunler asked, <laughs> "This one's for Mario." Mario, Matt asked, what resources are there to learn more about equity, diversity, and inclusion? Well, thanks for that question, Matt. Um, I try. You know, we get this question a lot and I really need to backpedal and just say from, from my experience of working with many different folks in many different situations, uh, what I find is that the interpretation of what the work of EDI is is so vast and varied, right? And so I always like to take a moment just to say, whatever you think it is, it's also 10 other things, right? And so before I even get to any resources, you know, I've had the privilege of working really closely with our EDI commission. And there's a, a subgroup, a working group that's been working on resources that would be provided uh, broadly. And when we got into the nitty gritty of the conversation, we said, you know, the work really starts with the I, right? What's the work you have to do for yourself as an adult, as an educator, right? Well, then the question comes like, so what do I do? Where do I get started? And so a lot of folks find value in doing these self-assessments. So we've had some luck with an instrument called the IDI, the Intercultural Development Inventory, I believe is the right term. Uh, which just is a framing mechanism to help you understand sort of your perception and your actions in the world. And then it has the ability to show you over time how you might be growing uh, to becoming more inclusive in your actions. Um, but we, we really talked to folks a lot about that. Like you got to start with yourself, right? You have to understand who you are on your own, who you are in relation to others, who you are in relation to content and communities and classrooms. And that's not easy work and that work is never done. It's sick. So we, what we learned right away is it's cyclical, right? So anything I say, you're likely going to revisit it multiple times, right? Which is why a one-shot self-assessment is probably not going to do it because you want to check in on your growth, right? Because as an association, we're committed to continual growth and improvement always in all categories, but especially in our ED&I work. So then you say, okay, well, so maybe I've done some work on myself. Well, I'm not alone, so I have to work with others, especially if I'm a teacher in a school community. Oh my goodness, how, and one, I love that uh, your main name is Bridges, right, Bridge? So like think of that concept of bridging to others, right? And so I often will use the example of James and I working together where we were starting to build a really strong relationship and then COVID hit and then Black Lives Matter really rose and, and spiked in the summer and we needed a response for NAEA and I, because we trust each other and we talk to each other regularly, I could ask him to craft an open letter to membership, but from a personal perspective. So that's an, just an example of how 
I chose to reach out to another person, but I was also working really hard to check in with him and make sure that that trust and the bonds were there and that I, he knew that I was a safety net to help support along the way and wasn't putting all this weight on him only. Hope I'm saying that accurately, James, but I know we, we worked through that. Um, but boy, you can't, you know, I can't, you can't just ask someone for their experience, their story, their wisdom, if you don't have those bonds of trust. So I always say, and I know this question about resource, but the resources take the time to listen and build connection and build bridges, because that's the only way that you can really work out from the center of the eye to reach others. Uh, and then we get to the classroom and, you know, ED&I, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the classroom is, I mean, I think mostly about my instructional moves. Mm -hmm. What do my seating charts look like? How often do I call on one student versus another? Who's in the corner, in the farthest corner of the room? How do I greet students when they walk into my, walk through the threshold of my classroom? Do I make them line up in the hall and be silent? Or do I welcome them in with joy? All of those teacher moves, that, that's to me where the real, the real work happens because how am I making someone feel included and heard and seen? God, isn't it awful to walk into a room and you're not seen? You're just hidden away? And then you get to the content right? What's the content of my lesson? So especially if you're going through art history examples, that, you know, that's a whole unpacking right there. So um, not to overly self-promote our own work, but when we were on this journey, the commission uh, worked really closely with me to create uh, um, what we call the uh, tips for getting started with equity, diversity, inclusion, which just really outlines kind of this like cyclical kind of step-by-step -step path from self to others to community and it keeps moving through those layers. So I really recommend that. And, you know, so many organizations are doing good work right now. Um, and our, we have a, a great colleague who does the um, anti-racist art educators website. And there's a, a community that's come together around those tools and resources that I also highly recommend. We've had them on the podcast. <laughs> um, <Yeah>, of course. <laughs> Mario, um, I just, so I, I love what you said. And I want to also connect back to Ruth's question about it. It really is a lifelong process. Um, I think, you know, learning in general, in general is, but last week I had an experience. I was talking with, um, I'm a part of our uh, Black Educator Association here in, in our school district. And I was talking to two of my colleagues that I've, I have a trusting relationship with and that I, I said, you know, I've learned so much from you. And then they, one of them said, no, you came to us that way. And I said, no, no, <laughs> oh no, oh no. I said, I listen and I learn, but I think I, I guess I, if I was, I'd say if I came with anything, it was with an open heart and an open ears. Like I am here to support and learn. And I think that that's the biggest thing is that you, you connect with organizations, you connect with, you know, literature and different things. And you, you do have to do a lot of self-reflection. And I think that that's key. Yep. I mean, just think, I mean, I think the power of listening is, completely undersold. It, it is the key to me to almost any, any movement forward. And I mean, just think about in any, like even a conversation like this, it's so easy to be worried and thinking about what I'm going to say next, mm -hmm. right? So that I sound good rather than listen to the conversation and take that in. And, and so, you know, it's, it's really a, an art form of its own that I think we really need to embrace. 
The other thing that if I might add that I keep thinking about is, you know, we arrived at this moment in time and we thought we were further ahead in embracing diversity. And then we had this moment where we're like, oh my goodness, we are not there at all. And we think we're learning all this and we think we're moving forward. And I think, wow, in 10 years, when we look back, we, you know, we, the things that we won't see right now. So I'm so glad that we're locking arms to do this work, but I know that there, you know, there are miles to go. Mm -hmm. All right, Ray, it's your turn. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we had uh, Janet Taylor and she asked the question. um, She'd like to know how, we can support and build more spaces for teachers of color in art education? Um, it's a great question. Uh, and if this is a Janet here I'm thinking of, she's doing some awesome work too herself in mm-hmm. art education, I think, right? So, yeah. um, but um, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 you know, think about this question. I think it's not just a arts education question, right? That's really about teachers of color across the spectrum in education that like, you know, that they're not necessarily being supported or we're not seeing them kind of stick around. Um, and I think it's a lot of things. Um, you know, Jan's question talks about space. And so I think, you know, how are we creating spaces for teachers of colors to connect with each other? Because, you know, as an art teacher, you're already, you know, oftentimes the only one at your school, right? And so you're looking around, <laughs> like, you know, you're, you know, when they're professional development or other stuff, like you're shoehorned into what, you know, reading or math or something else, right? Um, and so there's not, you're not seeing spaces for you to develop as a teacher, right? And then even when you do go to, you know, if we're gonna be really honest about these conversations, right? When you go to the NAEA conference, you don't see like the faces are majority white, right? And so um, I think that's a reality, right? Of the membership and of the field actually overall, not just again, arts teachers, but education in general. So, um, you know, those are reasons why like teachers of color are not staying in the field, right? They're not seeing themselves reflected. They're not finding connection. And so we have to create and build those spaces for connection for them um, and create spaces where they're feeling welcome and they're feeling heard, you know, going back to what Mario was talking about earlier for where they're feeling seen. Um, that starts in a lot of, there's a lot of different things that we can do. Uh, one of the pieces that we're trying to uh, implement at the convention this coming year is to create cultural identity and affinity spaces. Um, there have been uh, members who've done that informally on their own. Actually, if we look at things like the interest groups, they essentially are kind of a similar thing, right? Where like mm-hmm. the members are coming together to try to gather. But um, I participated in spaces like this where you get to be in a room just with educators who are, you know, sharing whether it's, and not just necessarily just racial identity, but, you know, you can talk about gender, sexuality, mm-hmm. Um, you know, ability, like all, you know, all different kinds of identity, identities people hold that are, you know, traditionally underrepresented or oppressed. And so uh, creating spaces for those folks to be able just to get together. And um, if you talk to lots of folks who participate in those spaces, it's like taking, like you you could just take a breath, you know, you could feel your shoulders just kind of relax for a second because you're not necessarily um, on edge in the same way. And like, you know, like, um, I can think for myself, just like the number of times when I've been sitting in a room and someone has said something and I kind of am looking around, it's like, I just need to find someone who I can look at and like, they know, right? They understand, like, so that I don't feel like I'm overreacting or I'm like, I'm imagining. And so um, cultural identity and affinity group spaces are those kinds of spaces where like, you know, you can kind of at least just start to connect and be able to talk 
Um, and that's really important, I think, for educators of color, just to like be able to develop that connection. You know, um, and that's a start. That's like, you know, that's like, I would say that's almost like a bare minimum <laughs> of what we're talking <laughs> about here. If like just to start is to create those spaces because from there, then we start to um, expand outward, right? Then like those folks can start to build coalitions and networks and look at ways to like gather their voice and gather their, you know, kind of build their strength and like, you know, step outward and be able to like um, enact real change, right? They can also start to recruit or bring in some of the, um, you know, newer teachers, I think. I think there's a lot, like there's a really important element of mentorship, right? And how we have, uh, how can, you know, veteran teachers or educators who are, you know, who've been in the field really help um, guide some of those newer teachers. Um, I, I, I mean, I know James does that, an incredible job of that. I know I've seen Wanda do that with, you know, with like, you know, newer educators and like, you know, like that's, that's huge. That's really important to be able to like have someone who can kind of help, you know, help you through those first few years of being an educator, being in the field. So mentorship, I think is another piece. Um, and then the last thing I would say around this is like, you know, um, when we're talking about supporting teachers uh, and especially teachers of color is um, kind of believing their experience. You know, when we talk about their, like when they come to administrators or leaders, you know, at their school or in their, in their institution, whatever that might be, um, and they talk about their experience, you know, that it's not like kind of downplaying it. It's like, oh, you're new. It'll be good. It'll get better. Oh, you'll get used to it. You know, it's not saying like, oh, well, you know, I don't think some, I don't, you know, someone said something, I, you're just kind of imagining it or you're taking it too seriously or they're just kind of, you know, like validating their experience because I think a lot of teachers of color like feel like they're, um, they get kind of dumped on or they also get like asked to do too much or, you know, like there's so many things that happen. And so um, if folks can kind of um, really listen, validate experience and support them in that way, that's how you kind of, that's how you can support them, you know, when they're, when they're entering the field and then moving through the field because way too often what they say or what, or their experiences are dismissed. And again, kind of looping back one more time to what Mario was saying, then they don't feel seen. And when you're not mm -hmm. seen in a space, when you don't feel like you matter at a school, why are you gonna stay around? I was, I was actually going to, and I'm glad you brought it up, uh, was gonna expand a little bit more on Janet's question, which was, you know, getting the veteran teachers, the pre-service teachers and in how that would change. And I'm glad you brought that up, the idea of mentorship, um, because I think that, you know, that mentorship is so important in the first place, but then when you, when you add to it, you know, it just makes it that much more uh, worthwhile. So thank you for bringing that up. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're going to stop for this episode. Thank you for tuning in to part one of our talk with the leadership from NAEA and discussing your equity, diversity, and inclusion questions. Next week, we'll pick up with the rest of the listeners submitted questions and can't wait to hear all of our leadership's answers. Thank you, everyone.
If you've been listening for a while, then you know that we are always looking for new ideas and inspirations. So if you have any suggestions, comments, or info to share with your peers, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or through our partner with Davis Publications at davisart.com.